0: Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We'll, we'll complete this chapter this morning in our study of Luke. And while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. There's a kind of faith that does no good. It does no good for the person who has it. and It does no good for others. That kind of faith cannot save anyone. It is the faith of the Pharisees in Luke's Gospel. Those who had this faith studied God's Word, and they worked hard to keep His commandments. But at the end of their day, their trust was misplaced. They believed in themselves and their own ability to save themselves. That kind of faith can never save. It is good for nothing. It does good for no one. Its only fruit is the fruit of hypocrisy. There is another kind of faith that we will see this morning, and it is saving faith. It is the faith of the woman in this narrative. It is the faith of the one, not who has worked hard to follow God's commands, but one who is keenly aware of her own failure to live up to God's commands. It is the faith of one who has a right estimation of herself. She knows she does not have what it takes to be saved. And it is the faith of one who has a right understanding of Christ. This is saving faith, and it is good and leads to good for the believer and for others. This is the faith that Jesus will commend to the Pharisee in this passage, and it is the faith that Luke commends to us. For no other faith can save but that which believes in Jesus Christ, who alone has power to save. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me this morning, beginning in verse 36, as I read from Luke thirty-six to the end, 7.36 to the end of the chapter. who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, We ask, O Lord, that you would come to us and make your presence known to us by giving us understanding so that we might be people who, like this woman, have that kind of faith that saves. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to answer this question that was on the lips of those who saw this. Who is this who even forgives sins? To see rightly who it is that Christ is and why it is that he has such authority and why it is that we need him to exercise this authority in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would show us these things from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that this chapter in Luke's gospel features the prophetic ministry of Christ. We noted in Luke seven sixteen that the people of Nain concluded that a great prophet has arisen among us. Moreover, we observe that Jesus' actions recalled the works of Elijah and Elisha in ways that pointed to him as a greater prophet. Last week, we saw that Jesus presented himself in connection with another prophet, namely John the Baptist, who he also described as one who was more than a prophet. This week, however, we return to a consideration of Jesus' prophetic ministry, of his prophetic credentials, which are brought into question by Simon the Pharisee. Why this focus on Jesus' prophetic ministry? Is it even right to call him a prophet? After all, many people and religions regard him as only a prophet, but Christians recognize Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who is Lord of heaven and earth. To be sure, just as John the Baptist was more than a prophet, not in the sense that he was not a prophet, but in the sense that he was the greatest of all prophets for the task pointing directly to the Christ, fell to him. So too, Jesus is a prophet and yet also more than a prophet. Not as one who is no prophet at all, but as one who fulfills God's promise to Moses that a greater prophet, a prophet like Moses, would come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, in verses 15 through 19, we read and hear these words spoken by Moses to the people of Israel. There he said, The Lord God "'The Lord your God will raise up for you "'a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. "'It is to him you shall listen. "'Just as you desired of the Lord your God "'at Horeb on the day of the assembly, "'when you said, let me not hear again "'the voice of the Lord my God, "'or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. "'And the Lord said to me, "'They are right in what they have spoken. "'I will raise up for them a prophet like you "'from among their brothers.' And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses spoke of a coming prophet who would be from among the uh, people of Israel, a fellow Israelite, one from among your brothers. But note what else he said about him. He talked about that time when Israel stood at Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and they rightly feared the Lord. They saw His awesome power on the mountain and they asked Moses to stand in the gap between them and Almighty God. They said, do not let us draw near lest we be consumed. They wanted a mediator. They wanted someone to go between them and God. And God's answer to Moses was, they are right. They've asked rightly, I will give them a mediator, and you're not it. Instead, God promised that he would raise up an ultimate prophet, a final prophet, one who would most completely intercede for God's people. This is the character of the true prophet of the Lord, one who is like Moses, for Moses was known as one who prayed for his people. He prayed for the people of Israel repeatedly, incessantly, that the Lord would forgive them for their sins. And God heard his prayer. And he therefore established a pattern. And note that God said, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. He would be characterized as one who receives God's word and speaks it to God's people just as Moses had received God's word and delivered it to God's people. But he would also be one who speaks to God on behalf of God's people. He would speak God's word from God to God's people and he would speak to God for God's people. That is the character of the true prophet of the Lord. In other words, he's not one who distances himself from sinners. He's not one who withdraws from them. He's one who draws near to the Lord for them. That's what Simon was missing when he concluded that Jesus was no prophet at all. But it's what Luke would have us see, and he will develop this picture throughout his gospel and throughout the book of Acts. We can preview some of that picture by looking ahead to Acts chapter 3. There in Acts chapter 3, verse 22 through 26, Peter preached in Solomon's portico and said that Jesus is the one who fulfilled these words of Moses. There he said, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God raised up Jesus Christ as the final prophet who fulfilled those words of Deuteronomy 18 to speak God's words in order to turn them in faith to God, but also to be one who would go to God on their behalf to seek forgiveness for them. In fact, not only to seek it, but to grant it, to accomplish it. That's what Luke will show us this morning. That's why we can say that Jesus is a prophet and more than a prophet, the greatest of prophets, for He's not only one who prays to God that God might forgive us. He is one who has the authority to grant forgiveness for sins. He is the one who is able to accomplish what is necessary so that we might be forgiven. This is what we need to learn this morning. It's what Simon the Pharisee needed to learn as well. Now, it's important to see that this passage is thematically related to our text from last week. For one, we are dealing with the same kinds of people that were featured in Jesus' discourse about John the Baptist. There is a woman who is regarded as a sinner. And you remember in Luke 7:34 how Jesus said that the chief charge of this generation against Him was that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We also saw the Pharisees and the scribes featured in that passage where the Pharisees were presented as those who rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They did not receive John's preaching about repentance. They said, that's not for us. We don't need it. And here we take up a narrative that gives us types, individuals who typify that kind of thinking in this narrative as they encounter Jesus. We see that Jesus shows himself to be a friend of sinners and tax collectors. We see that Simon the Pharisee has a problem with it just like Jesus spoke in the passage we looked at last week. Nevertheless, something Jesus said in that instance must have piqued Simon's interest. Perhaps he was willing to reconsider. He was willing to reevaluate this Jesus, so he invited him to his home for a banquet. The details of the narrative are surprising to us, for one reason, because it's so foreign to us. But let me help you to visualize it. Boys and girls, you have on your note sheet... An opportunity to draw a picture on the back. And as I describe this, try to draw what it's like. You see, in that context, when someone would host a banquet, usually it was a Sabbath day or it was some kind of special occasion. Typically, they would want to honor somebody. And so they would have a a table that was set up almost like uh, the shape of a U. So that the person who would serve the food could walk in the middle of this table and everyone who was eating at this banquet could sit on the outside of it. They would have cushions, they'd call them couches, and they'd lay on their left side, and they'd reach over with their right hand to grab the food, and you can, boys and girls, think when you're sitting at home on the couch eating potato chips, you're reclining, and you're eating your food, but you're getting all the crumbs on you. This is a much better, more effective way to eat when you're laying down. The crumbs don't fall on you, maybe on your head, but that's it but that's the picture. It's a little bit weird. We don't eat like that, but they would lay down, and they would recline. They would pull the food off their table, and so you can imagine in this picture, their feet are facing away from the table, and these events were, in a way, public. You see, people who weren't invited to the banquet were free to come in, but they had to be kind of like wallflowers. They had to stand on the side and just observe the events These were the great people that were eating at the banquet, and you were free to come and watch. You can imagine what it would be like in in our own context if, say, the president and the Senate Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House had some kind of uh, dinner where they were going to discuss policy, and they sat down to eat, and journalists would come and mill about. Journalists wouldn't get any food. They'd stand on the edges, and they'd watch what was happening. Well, that's kind of the idea. These people are having a banquet that Simon is hosting, and Jesus is invited. And Simon is going to reconsider him. So if those foreign things which seem so uh, strange to us are really not so strange, they wouldn't have been strange to Jesus or to the people in this narrative. But that helps us then to see what really is strange, what would have been strange to the people who were present in this narrative. You see, this woman comes in. And like I said, she would have been free to come in and observe. But she comes in, and she does more than observe. She comes in, and she begins to act in this extraordinary way toward Jesus. You see how she comes in, and she's weeping. The way that Luke describes her, he notes that she was a sinner of the city, that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. And the Pharisee immediately recognizes it. She's got a reputation. Now many have speculated as what might be the substance of her sin, what might have caused her to have this reputation as a sinner. But I want you to note that Luke doesn't tell us. Luke says nothing about her sin except that she was a sinner. Not what her sins are. Some have speculated that she might have been engaged in some kind of promiscuous vocation. But she could have just as easily been associated with Roman tax collectors and extortionary schemes or some other kind of sinful practice. There were all kinds of things that would have caused a Pharisee to regard someone as beyond the pale, as a great sinner. And Luke doesn't tell us any of them. Instead, he focuses on the great way in which she demonstrates her love for Jesus. Look at how he piles up the descriptions of her. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. She's acting in an extraordinary way, in a surprising way, in a shocking way. And it was shocking to Simon the Pharisee. But we can reflect on this and say, she probably did not come with an intention to wash Jesus' feet. She came with the ointment, with an alabaster flask of ointment, maybe to anoint him or to give it to him in some way, to honor him in some way. She probably didn't come in order to wash his feet. She might have expected that Simon would have already done that. Perhaps she comes and she sees Jesus there and His feet haven't been washed, which was a customary way to honor a person. And perhaps that's what causes her to weep. Again, Luke doesn't tell us why she's weeping. Maybe she's weeping because she knows the greatness of her sin. But she is weeping and she sees what has not been done and she uses whatever is available to her. Her tears and her hair to resolve this situation by showing Jesus the honor that he deserved, that Simon withheld from him. She washes his feet with her tears. She has no water with her. She wipes his feet with her hair. She has no towel with her. She kisses his feet. She pours ointment on his feet. She's honoring this man with the honor that he deserved, with the honor that Simon withheld. But Simon doesn't interpret it that way. He doesn't blush, thinking he's somehow forgotten to do something. In truth, he wasn't really obligated to do that kind of honor to Jesus. But if he had known who Jesus really was, he would have rushed to do it. But clearly, he's not made up his mind about Jesus, but he's leaning to think he's not really so great. He's not really worthy of this kind of honor. Certainly, not to receive it from me. is the way Simon must be thinking in that moment. And then, as we are clued into his inner thoughts, his inner monologue, we find that he starts to think, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon reasons in this way. Here is his logic. Premise one, a true prophet would not let sinners near him. Premise two, A true prophet would know if a person was a sinner. Jesus is letting a sinner near him. Therefore, he is not a true prophet. That's the way that he reasons. For either he does not know who she is, or he does not care. We've already seen that premise one is false. Premise one, that a true prophet would not let sinners near him. A true prophet draws near to God on behalf of sinners. He does not distance himself from them, but he identifies himself with them. Just as Isaiah said when he was called in Isaiah 6 5, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Of course, Jesus had no sin of his own. Nevertheless, just as Isaiah associated himself with sinful Israel, Jesus did not withdraw from sinful people. He came as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He came as their great physician to heal them. The second premise is effectively destroyed as well. The funny thing is, Jesus did know. He knew all about this woman, and he also knew all about Simon. He knew about Simon's inner monologue. He understood the flaws in Simon's logic. And there's a third point that never entered into Simon's mind, which Jesus is going to give to him. Jesus has come near to him also. and He himself was a sinner, something he's about to learn. As was his wont, Jesus responded with a parable. Here we're introduced to Simon by name for the first time. I've been calling him Simon, but Luke does not yet name him until this point. we'll we'll return to why that might be. Why is it that Luke actually names Simon in the course of this narrative, which is not something he commonly does in narratives like this. But at this point, let us simply note that Jesus has set his sights on this one man by name. And what he is about to say is addressed primarily at first to an audience of one. The parable he tells is straightforward and its application is unavoidable. Two debtors... One lender, two debts, one great, one small. But neither man has had the ability to repay. And we are left wondering what the lender will do. To which the reply comes in a word. Canceled. Forgiven. He gave them grace. It's an amazing, amazing picture. But Jesus is not finished. For he has a question for Simon, a little test for him. Who will love that lender more? Who will appreciate his generosity the most? Who will admire him most completely, most thoroughly? Simon supposed it was the one who received the greater grace, and Simon supposed rightly. Now the trap is laid, and Jesus is ready to confront Simon. He turns to the woman, but he's still speaking to Simon as he directs his attention to her. And he asks, do you see this woman? But before he explains why he has drawn Simon's attention to this woman, he makes his first charge. I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. From a human perspective, as I said, Simon was not under obligation to do this, to show this degree of hospitality to Jesus. But it would not have been unheard of. And it would have been a normal thing to do if Simon had regarded Jesus as someone worthy of honor. Clearly, though, Simon had extended the invitation. Though he had extended the invitation, he did not regard Jesus as that kind of person. In fact, Simon gave Jesus no customary show of honor. He did not kiss him on the cheek or on the hand, which would have been standard in that culture. He did not anoint his head with oil, another practice that would have been standard when welcoming a guest into his home. But the woman at every turn did what Simon failed to do and more. Even though Jesus was not her guest, she surely was under no obligation to show him hospitality. He was not her guest. And yet, she washed his feet with whatever she could, even humbling herself to the point of using her own tears, her own hair, and not ceasing to kiss her feet, Jesus says. She humbly honors Jesus with the honor that she knows that he deserves. Why did Jesus confront Simon this way? Was he angry? Was he hurt? Was he offended? No. The translation, therefore, I tell you, may come across a bit too strong. It translates an idiom, something like of a grace, which we could render for your sake. Or as a kindness, I say this to you. Jesus confronted Simon for his own sake. He's saying this to Simon for his sake, so that he might learn what he needs to learn. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is given, forgiven little, loves little. Her sins were many. Jesus acknowledged as much. There's no way around it. Her sins indeed were great, but Luke never names them. They have been forgiven. They have been released, is the language here. They're gone, not to be accounted for anymore, as we read together this morning from Psalm 103. They have been removed from her as far as the east is from the west. This woman knows the wonderful freedom of forgiveness. Therefore she loves. Luke does not present her love as the reason she receives forgiveness. He presents it as the result of the forgiveness that she has received. It is the result of her forgiveness. This interpretation is what makes sense in light of the parable Jesus has spoken. The person who has already been forgiven much by the creditor, by the lender, that person loves much. Simon, by comparison, did not love Jesus that much. What does that say about him? Nevertheless, he and all of us stand in need of the same forgiving grace. It's only at this point that Jesus turns his attention directly to the woman. She is not a mere prop for him to teach a lesson. He values her. He loves her. She is a forgiven sinner with great faith. And so he sends her away with words of assurance he says, your sins are forgiven. And he told her, your faith has saved you. And he blessed her saying, go in peace. These wonderful words of assurance spoken by our Lord are the words he speaks to all who come to him with that faith that can truly save. Three simple messages. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For an answering question that everyone else asked, who is this who even forgives sins, we see that Jesus is the true and greatest prophet, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. No sin is so great that he cannot bear it. No sinner so sick that he cannot heal them. And he assures us too, if we believe in him, that he is able to do this, that he is willing to do this, we will likewise be forgiven. Here, Simon had a lesson about saving faith. And here also, we receive a lesson about saving faith. It's a faith that trusts in Christ and Christ alone. There is no sense in which that faith rests upon ourselves in anything that we do, in any effort that we make, in any discipline that we might have. It's a faith in Christ and Christ alone. But we also need to see this about saving faith. Saving faith is serious about sin. Saving faith leaves the forgiveness of sins, but if we are to have any idea what this means for us, we must understand our terms. We must have a clear understanding of sin and the forgiveness that Christ offers us. So I want you to understand what sin is. And I want you to know that saving faith is serious about it. There are a number of images that help us to understand what sin is. You often hear the, the, the definition that it's missing the mark which is good and it's right, but alone, it leaves us with the sense that it's just like an honest mistake. It's really not that big a deal. A fuller picture helps to refine our understanding. In this text, sin is characterized in terms of debt. It is not the debt. It is that which caused the debt. A debt to whom and for what? The answer is that by virtue of our sin, we have incurred a debt to our Maker and our Creator, to God. If you, on your way home, are pulled over for speeding, and you receive a ticket for, let's say, $100, you will incur a debt for that infraction of the law. You will incur a debt to society. But it's not a debt that you're not going to be able to pay. It's certainly an obligation that most all of us would be able to fulfill. However, God sets the requirements for His own law. That is, God sets the debt that God is the one who establishes what we owe to him for transgressing his law. He says that if you transgress his law, and we all have, then we incur a debt that we cannot pay except with our life forever and eternally. Whether we know that law from Scripture or not is immaterial. We cannot say we did not know. But the Apostle Paul in Romans two fourteen through 16 wrote, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. A person who murders cannot say, well, I didn't know about the Ten Commandments. We know God's law In our hearts even if we don't know what he has written and therefore we know that we are all guilty in some way or another we have all transgressed the law of God that is what sin is and so we have incurred a debt a debt that we cannot pay except with our life forever in eternal judgment forever and ever this is the picture of sin that we get from God's word and it's the picture of the consequences of sin that is before us. We are great debtors but all of this simply in this text shows us the extent of God's great love for sinners of his great grace because he forgives our sins and he removes them far from us through Jesus Christ our Lord. But let's not run too far, quickly too far along that path. You see our culture, we need to reckon is not serious about sin. We're rather like Simon the Pharisee. We take God's grace for granted. We do not love much because we do not think that we have been forgiven that much. Sure, no one is perfect, we might say, but we're not that bad, we think. We have the right values. We do what God's Word says, more or less. Jesus does not speak that way about the sin of this woman here. Notice he does not paper over it or ignore it. He does not say of the woman, her sins are really not that bad, Simon, but your hypocrisy stinks. He says her sins are great. Her sins are many, but she's forgiven. He does not minimize his, his, her sins. He exalts his great grace. That is why I say that saving faith is serious about sin. No one ever solved the problem of his sin by denying it, ignoring it, minimizing it, excusing it, or correcting it. No amount of personal reform can save you from your sins. The only way we can do anything about our sin is by dealing with it honestly and seriously through faith. And this means we must bring it into the light before God. By His great grace, God invites us to do just that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read in 1 John chapter 1. That is a simple and glorious promise. If we confess our sins, God has promised that He will forgive us, and He's good for it. He's faithful and just to do it. God would have us deal with our sin honestly by confessing it to Him. Now note, you don't need any other mediator save the Lord Jesus Christ for this. You don't need a priest or a pastor to hear your confession. You don't need to come to me or anyone else in order to receive this forgiveness though it can be a good practice and is a practice that is commended to us to confess our sins to one another, as James teaches us in James 5.16. But the only mediator that is the only one who we need to mediate God's grace to us, to dispense God's grace to us, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is serious about dealing with sin. And he is the only one who is able and qualified to deal with our sin in a way that can result in full forgiveness. As I said, he does not deal with our sin by ignoring it, or by minimizing it, or simply putting a line through our record with a pen. He deals with it by canceling our debt and the record of our debt by paying that debt himself. As we find in Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is how serious sin is. Because of our sin, We incurred an unpayable debt, a debt so great that it could only be canceled through the death of the Son of God. And Jesus Christ is so serious about sin that he did just that. He dealt with our sin finally and fully by going to the cross. The record of your sin, if you trust in him, it's gone. Nailed to the cross. All of your trespasses, where are they? If you put your faith in Christ, they're canceled. He did that. Jesus Christ did that for you. No one else could do that. No one else would do that. You can't do it. I can't do it. But he was able and he was willing and he did it. This is the substance of saving faith. We understand ourselves rightly. We understand Christ rightly. We see our sin for what it is. A debt we can never repay. And we see Christ's grace for what it is. A gift we could never earn. Did Simon receive that lesson? This question may have occurred to you. He was initially open-minded to Christ. He seems, It seems in the fact that he is named may suggest that he was ultimately the eyewitness source for this account, which in turn would suggest that he was part of the early church and got the message. Nevertheless, Luke doesn't tell us this. He leaves it an open-ended question, only highlighting Jesus' great concern, not just for this woman who he's forgiven, but his great concern for Simon, that Simon should hear what he had to say. Jesus loved Simon. Jesus wanted Simon to enjoy forgiveness and grace, so he spoke plainly to Simon. He spoke bluntly to him. He put all decorum aside and was willing to offend his host so that Simon might find eternal life if he would humble himself and believe. This is a mark of his great love. And suggests to us that we should all see something of ourselves in Simon. His first concern was not that Simon should treat this woman with more dignity. Though he surely cared about that. His first concern was that Simon should see himself rightly. And see Christ rightly. And what about us? There's something of a self-righteous Pharisee in every one of us. It lurks in every one of our hearts. And the only cure for that sin-sick heart is the same gospel truth that produced such love in the woman who came to Jesus. That is the real question that interests Luke. Not what happened to Simon, but what about you? Will you respond by turning from whatever shred of self-righteousness that infects your soul? Will you respond by giving serious consideration to your own sin and to the Savior who has freed you from it? This is the only cure for a Pharisee's heart. It is the only way we will progress from people who trust in ourselves to people who love much because of how much we have been loved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you now. The great creator of the universe, great and holy God, perfect in every way, and yet one who graciously receives sinners. How could this be possible? Who is it that can forgive sins? Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Lord. Lord, make us to trust Him. And if there be any here this morning who have not yet believed with saving faith, O Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts through the Spirit whom you send, through your Holy Spirit, to produce new life in them so that they might believe. And having believed, Find life forevermore. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.